Welcome to On Meaning. I'm Eugene Leventhal. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Joel Voss, who is, amongst other things, a psychologist, a philosopher, and an existential therapist. We spoke about some of his research that has looked at different components that go into living a meaningful life. We talked about the dimensionality of meaning, and we wrap up with some of Joel's work in the last year looking at meaning during a global pandemic. As a quick tangent, we got into phenomenology a bit, which is a school of philosophy exploring consciousness and the structure of experience. I just want to make sure to note that phenomenology is very different from phrenology, in case you're hearing of these for the first time, uh, or you vaguely have heard of these. Phrenology is not a proper science and was all about the feeling of people's skulls to find bumps which supposedly predicted mental traits. Now keep in mind, this is a thing that was, you know, 200-ish years old as it started getting more popular, and I don't want to go on a long tangent before we even get into the, the interview or more of the substance of the interview, but I just want to make sure that listeners know that when Joel and I are discussing phenomenology, right, the philosophy of consciousness and experience, we are not talking about phrenology, which is the pseudoscience that was used to support racist claims and ideas, Again, just based on, amongst other things, the way that people's heads felt. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Joel also laid out a few different ways of starting the process of thinking about meaning of life. The way that he talks about the sailboat metaphor for thinking about life really stressed how much of the exploration in terms of leading a meaningful life really is a journey and not a destination in of itself. The idea that no one thing could solve a person's lack of fulfillment in life just rings so true in terms of my own personal experience. I, I know I've definitely put all of my emotional eggs in a single basket of, oh, if only this one thing happened or this one thing changed, then I'd be happy forever. You know, only to be reminded time and time again that the single thing can be part of a meaningful life. But the single thing itself will not provide endless amounts of fulfillment. Another thing that came up that particularly resonated with me was the idea that, you know, on the one hand, there's a desire to figure out meaning in life, and that desire is a healthy one. On the other hand, it's important to know when to stop questioning and to start living, to start doing. As someone who can easily get into uh, analysis paralysis and, you know, just trying to get more information and map out the best possible choice and course of action, at a certain point, there's the realization of there is only after the fact will all of the fact, all of the necessary information be known. And in order to actually figure it out, you just kind of have to go through it. And as much as I've been enjoying, you know, reading, watching, listening to learn more about ideas that go into living a meaningful life, I know I want to focus more on committing to actually experimenting with different habits, with different behaviors, with different approaches, and seeing what the result is over months and years. And that's also why I really want to build a community around this podcast, so we can hopefully find more folks who also want to experiment with different approaches towards life, and sharing notes with each other on what's working and what isn't. The idea of discovering your own meaning in life, finding your own meaning in life, leading a fulfilling life, these are all long and arduous journeys. So let's come together and help each other along the way. 
But that's enough on my side for now. So let's get to the interview. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining today. Just to start us off, do you mind mentioning your full name and title? Yes. So my name is Joel Voss and I have a PhD and I'm very happy to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Likewise, I'm very excited for it. And to begin the discussion, do you mind just actually mentioning how you initially got into the line of work that you're currently doing? Uh, yes, of course. So I think that I've always been interested in life and in topics like meaning in life. Even as a young child, I think I was always asking questions about all the, the bigger topics in life. And so I was almost born with questions like this idea to say. Uh, but on a more professional level, it was particularly when I started working with cancer patients when I was a PhD student. And there was a PhD project in psychology where I looked at the psychological impact and the existential dimension of cancer. Uh, because when you have cancer, it's something that really is not only like a medical issue, but it has a big impact on our psyche on, and on how we live life. And that's very much where I then started to see also on a professional level the importance of addressing yeah, the existential themes. Absolutely. And... I guess as we as we start the discussion exploring the question of meaning, what do you see as some different ways of approaching that in the first place? What, what are some different uh, manners one can think of meaning? I think that first we need to make a big distinction between the meaning of life written with capital letters and meaning in life with smaller letters. Or actually, I prefer to use it even as an adjective, like living a meaningful life or living meaningfully. Because I personally think, and also from a professional perspective, it's very difficult to say what is the meaning of life for a person or for everyone. And of course, a lot of people, they have certain ideas and opinions around that. And also a lot of religions, they have spoken about it. What I'm more interested in is our psychological experience of it, our personal subjective experience of meaning in life and how do we live a meaningful life. And we don't necessarily need to use all those big concepts or very metaphysical ideas to be able to talk about meaning. And so it's very important, I think, that we have like a down-to-earth approach to it. And even though we start from Earth, we can still go into those very big topics because it's also more still than like a flat earth that we live on. And because there are mountains, there's hills, etc., And that's in our experiences, in our lives. We experience those heights, moments that are more meaningful than others. And that is what I'm interested in. And, but we don't necessarily need like a metaphysical or a philosophical language for that. So when I use the term meaning, I use it in a way to describe people's individual subjective experiences. Let's start exploring that a little more deeply with the idea of what are what are the components that are necessary or that you have found as being part of leading a meaningful life? This was actually a question that I have also been asking myself, because when I had done my PhD project, after that, I started working with clients and giving uh, psychotherapy. And I really wanted to address topics like meaning in life with my clients. And so I asked myself, okay, how should I define it? And what is evidence-based without needing to go into all those metaphysical concepts? What I did then is that I did a lot of systematic reviews of the scientific literature 
And I even did some meta-analysis, as that is called. And a meta-analysis is an analysis in which you include many other papers. And you summarize all of that with sometimes some small uh, single numbers instead of needing to discuss each of the studies separately. And my reviews and meta-analysis, they actually showed some very clear, consistent, coherent answers across the field. So I dare to say that what I've developed with my systematic reviews and meta-analysis is a more or less evidence-based review of the experience of meaning in life. And so when uh, I looked at that, meaning in life seems to have multiple aspects. And I often describe or summarize those aspects with metaphor. And that's a metaphor of sailing. Because living a meaningful life is like sailing through life. Because when you have a sailboat and you, are, and you want to sail, it's much more than simply going to to a certain destination from A to B, because there's much more involved. It's like a totality of experiences. And that is also the case for meaning in life. It's not only having one specific goal in life or one specific direction, it's much more. It's a holistic concept. So to break that down, and also the basis of the research that I found, is yes, of course, when we sail through life, when we live a meaningful life, we often have certain goals or certain directions, and that's motivation. Uh, but it's also more than that, because uh, we can change that. We can say, okay, I'm now following this goal in my life, but it can, that can change. And I may want to change it once in a while. And also, um, I may actually also be led by values, because meaning is more than just arriving at a place. Meaning is also about our values. It is about how do I get from A to B? It's the how question. For instance, when I sail on a sailing boat, I really want to use the wind, and I do not want to use the motor because it is much more about being part of nature and really uh, using my value of, yeah, not, not cheating by using my motor <laughs> in that sense. And in a similar way, we have values that can drive us in life, whereas we can use artificial uh, uh, values in life or more authentic. Sailing through life or living a meaningful life is also knowing where we are on the map in our lives, know, understanding our place in life, understanding our place in the universe, in society, in, economy, in the economy, in politics, etc. And understanding how my personal sense of meaning is very much influenced by that context. It's also about navigating. So it's about knowing how to set specific goals on the basis of my understanding of my surroundings, of the map, and of my values and knowing where I want to go to. But it, these are very specific skills that we need in our daily lives. It's okay, it's one thing to say I know more or less what's important for me in life, but how do I realize it in my daily life? That's a totally different thing. And this is about topics like how to set specific goals, control situations, adjust and evaluate my bearings. Meaning in life also involves a sense of self because when I do not feel worthy to go sailing and follow my own values, then I won't be able to live a meaningful life. Because self-worth is important. So that I can say, yes, I feel worthy enough to go sailing and to follow my motivation and to try to realize what's meaningful to me in life. It's also about actually doing, because I may still have the skills, I may still know where I want to go to, etc. But as long as I do not actually commit to action, if I don't actually really do it, nothing won't happen. And finally, I also need to have the existential skills to cope with turmoils in life. Because all human beings will, at a certain point in life, come at a crossroads in their life. 
where they experience challenges, paradoxes, things that they cannot realize, uh, that they cannot make happen. Uh, for instance, like COVID-19 is like suddenly cutting off uh, the dreams of many people. How do you deal with that? Are you going to respond in a very rigid way or are you more flexible to adjust your goals and to still live a meaningful life despite or even thanks to those changed circumstances? So when you ask me what's meaning in life, I give this definition, this evidence-based definition on the basis of hundreds of papers of research that includes motivation, uh, having a direction in our life, values, knowing our understanding where we are in life and in the universe, having the skills, the goal-setting skills, having selfless, actually committing to action and also having those skills to deal with adversity in life. Yeah, thank you for providing that breakdown. And I think, well, first off, it's always encouraging to see evidence-based approaches towards these questions as opposed to uh, just a single person's viewpoint. But I, I think something that very much resonated with me is both this distinction of, you know, the capital M meaning versus what do you need to live the meaningful life or a meaningful life. And second, as you mentioned, it sounds as though even as you're thinking and goal setting and trying to make these things actionable, it's not as though what is giving you meaning in a certain point in time is the single, the singular capital M meaning that you can strive towards. There's this flexibility and change around what, what you derive meaning from. And I feel like on the one hand, that can be more daunting of, oh no, this is a continuous journey of constantly assessing and reassessing what is providing meaning in my life. But at the same time, it also will hopefully make it less scary to not think of, oh, I need to figure out a single meaning. And like, that is the thing that either will or will not make me happy. So, so I can say a little bit more about this, because what we know in general is that when you have multiple things that are meaningful for you in life, that you will be more resilient in dealing in an effective way with, with life challenges. For instance, I have been a psychotherapist for people in the London city who lost their job uh, due to the banking crisis. And their problem was very much that they have been focusing so much on their job. And when the crisis came, they lost a job. And suddenly, that was also their single meaning in life. So suddenly they were asking, okay, why should I still continue living? And they became suicidal. So what we often say as like a rule of thumb is that it can be helpful if we, you have like a diversity of four or five different types of meaning in life that feel important to you. Because if one area gets challenged, you still have those other areas. But another thing is important to also mention is... This approach, indeed, what you're saying is more flexible and it's not, um, it, it releases us a little bit from the burden of needing to find the one and only big purpose of it all. Yes, in that sense, it's more flexible. But at the same time, it's not flexible because what I'm saying is also uh, that we need to use like what I call a phenomenological intuition. And that means, very simple, that we listen to our gut. And that we listen to our gut. What's it telling about what's more meaningful and what's less meaningful? Um, so we need to take our own experiences serious. And we will find out that it's not random. Like, it's not as if I can replace one particular meaning randomly for another type of meaning. For instance, like, okay, I lose my job as a banker and I can immediately replace that for becoming like a, like a road sweeper. 
No, that will not be possible because it is very much about values or certain yeah, things that are more meaningful for me than other things. And so phenomenological intuition, that is very much about making that distinction between what's meaningful and what's less meaningful. And that is the process how we can find out for ourselves what's meaningful and what's not meaningful. And that is, that is not about reading a book about seven steps uh, towards a meaningful life or using one of those other hundreds of self-help books that you can pick from the shelves. Meaning in life is not ready-made because meaning in life can only be found by doing this critical self-analysis of asking yourself continuously, is this really meaningful? Or is this not so meaningful? Or was this possibly meaningful for me in the past? But is this not as meaningful at this moment anymore? So it is relatively absolute in that sense, because my feelings, my intuitions can be quite strong in that sense. And yes, of course, we can come with some scientific backgrounds or some scientific explanations why certain things are more meaningful for me than others, even like uh, neurology, or we can talk about how we are being nudged all the time, also by society, by marketing, by the economy that is telling us what we should see as meaningful. However, as part of this process that I'm talking about, it is about critically listening to our intuition and all the time asking yourself, is this truly meaningful or is it less meaningful? And words like truly or authentically, these words, I do not use those in absolute terms, in metaphysical sense, in philosophical terms, like we know it absolutely, this is absolutely true. No, it is true for me in my experience. And in my experience, there's an absolute difference between doing one thing in my life and doing another thing in my life. And I, I do want to ask some, uh, at least one follow-up in terms of, say, the, the dimensionality of meaning in terms of the more day-to-day lived experience versus more very abstract, uh, kind of very larger-than-life kind of elements of meaning. But before getting into that, I, I just want to ask a follow-up on a term that you mentioned in terms of phenomenology. Do you mind just defining that and, and giving a little overview of what you mean by that? Of course. So. When I use the term phenomenology, I refer to a way of looking at our experiences that developed in the 19th, beginning of 20th century by philosophers like um, Brentano, Husserl, Heidegger, and many others. What I mean by phenomenology, I often compare that with unpeeling. For instance, if you have a piece of fruit, it has different layers. And you can, for instance, unpeel a mango. You can get rid of the outer layers of the mango and you will arrive then at the core. And the process of unpeeling, of getting rid of the outer layers, that is phenomenology. So, for instance, when I ask myself what is meaningful or what's less meaningful, I'm unpeeling, I'm getting rid of some of the layers that I've been covered up with. Because my parents, they have taught me certain values. Society is um, really bombarding me every day with a lot of messages via social media um, and via governments who are trying to put me in a certain uh, uh, direction. And I'm asking myself critically all the time, is this meaningful? Is this less meaningful? And I'm not looking at that from like a theoretical perspective with my head and, and cognitively. But with my full being, it's very much embodied. Like, what does my gut say? What does my intuition say? 
And so that process of unpeeling our experiences like a piece of fruit, that is what I call phenomenology. The difference in how I talk about phenomenology and how others have spoken about it is that I talk about it in a pragmatic way. So I call this systematic, pragmatic phenomenology. Because I think it's important when we ask ourselves those questions in a systematic way and not like randomly, because we, are, we can very quickly start fooling ourselves because it's so easy in our society. But we need to be very critical in a systematic way by asking ourselves those questions about meaning. But it's also pragmatic, because in the metaphor of the piece of fruit, you can say, well, we will start digging and getting rid of all those outer layers of our experiences until we arrive at the core. But then again, that is almost like the meaning of life. It, it comes to that very essentialistic way of thinking, the idea that there are essences, that there are essences and absolute truths. Certain individuals may experience that. Certain individuals may feel that after such a process of exploring their experiences, that they arrive at an ultimate truth for themselves. Who am I to say that that doesn't exist for them? However, for other people, they will not achieve this point where they will say, yes, there's a core in my experiences, like a hard core, like a piece of fruit, like mango. And for them, it may be more like an onion, where you can continue getting rid of all those outer layers, but without there being one particular core, because it's, it's just layers. So for phenomenology and for this pragmatic approach to it, it's not needed to assume that we will arrive at a point where we can say this is the absolute meaning in life. What is important is the process. It's the process of continuously asking myself in a critical way, is this meaningful or is this less meaningful for me? And that is very much what phenomenology is about in my perception. And so when you when you bring it down to this level of this sort of iterative process of what is the meaningful activity now and what can I adjust in terms of my habits and my day-to-day -day behavior to lead a more meaningful life according to that, how, how important is it to have sort of a higher order meaning still? Uh, and, and so what I, to give a, a more concrete example, say if my, if what I see as my kind of abstract big letter M meaning that I'm ascribing for myself, not that, not to pretend there's a, a predefined essence of my meaning out there, but even if I'm deciding that my overall meaning in life is to, you know, help normalize mental health and help people uh, have a, a quicker journey in finding their meaning in life than maybe mine, which has felt very circuitous, uh, has taken me down. Uh, but then the more lowercase m meaning is, say, working on this podcast, is practicing writing, is acquiring certain knowledge and skills so I can hopefully be able to help people more. Is it necessary to still have it broken out in that process of, I have my small, actionable, meaningful activities, which then feed into this overarching meaning? Or is that just purely the model that works for me and other people don't need forms of abstraction about it? Or, you know, there, there are just different ways to sort of uh, piece that together for an individual. There are actually two different answers to this. The first one is very much a question about how much theory do we need? Do we need to be able to um, yeah, verbalize it and express it in big terms. I would say it's not necessary to really be able to reflect on it and to be able to use all those big terms for it. It actually, what I often see is that the more you reflect on meaning in life, 
the less you experience it. So I think it's really important when we when it's about meaning in life that we're able to experience it and to be, to do, instead of to necessarily talk about it. Of course, it's it can be very helpful once in a while that we take some time and we reflect on what's what what is it actually that I'm doing? Where am I going in life? If we're not doing that, we can we can get totally lost and we can actually lose our bearings. So it's part of the critical uh, intuitive the phenomenological process. But once in a while, I have those reflective moments. However, we do not necessarily need to be able to um, use all those big terms or be able to use all the big books with that. Of course, it's particularly when our meaning is getting blocked or frustrated. It's particularly at those moments that we start to theorize and reflect on it in a cognitive, rational way. And these can be helpful moments. Um, for instance, I've seen it in my work with cancer patients when people are dying. But also in my recent research on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people's lives, how actually the pandemic makes them reflect. And that can be very helpful for a lot of people that start to think, okay, what are my priorities? And um, however, at the same time, for other people, it can become like a big burden, whereas actually they get really stuck in their head, particularly because there is not one overarching absolute answer uh, or an absolute truth. Like thinking and reflecting on it will not lead you necessarily to the answer to it all. At a certain point, you just need to do, you need to live, and you need to experience. And it's an embodied process. So there is the psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, he used the term de-reflection. I really love the term. And also another term he uses is de um, it's actually also to not be focusing on our intentions, on like our hyper-intentionality, because often we are hyper-reflective and hyper-intentional. So we really are reflecting and we even start reflecting on our reflections. Always hyper-intentious, we want something so much that that will be the only thing that we're only thinking about in life. And Victor Frankl is saying, well, that approach is sometimes very unhelpful. And then it's important that we start to stop reflecting and instead start experiencing and go back to the body. And things like going into nature can help, uh, walking, meditation, uh, all those processes that can get us out of our head. And so that's part of the process. So this is answer one to your question. It's about, no, we do not necessarily need theorizing and the big words. Sometimes that can be helpful but not always. The second part is already going more or less into the topic of different types of meaning in life. Because when you look at all the research that's out there, they found that different people uh, describe different things that are meaningful for them in their lives. And so I've looked at, what is it, more than 107 studies worldwide in which people were asked, what's meaningful for you or valuable or important in your life? And what I then did is that I categorized the answers. And there was a very consistent and coherent pattern. And that is, um, and these are six different types of meaning, what I call the meaning sextet. In the first place, there are the materialistic types of meanings. And these are the types of meanings that are about material possessions and financial security, our success in our profession or our education. So it's something very physical, something that we can hold in our hands, like we can hold our diploma or our degree in our hand. Then there are the hedonistic types of meanings, which is about 
just enjoying life, which is also, um, for instance, also having nice experiences, such as enjoying food, nice drinks, uh, going to the movies, reading a nice book, uh, walking in nature, having sex. This can be all nice experiences in, in life. And that hedonism can really also give some sense of meaning. Then there are the self-oriented types of meanings, which is very much about self-development, about resilience, about self-acceptance, autonomy, uh, self-expression, self-care. There are also the social types of meanings, which is obviously about our social connection, belonging to a community, helping others, taking care of children or our elders or the sick. Then there are also the larger types of meanings, and these are more specific higher purposes that people may have in life. Um, for instance, as a psychotherapist and also as an author, I really have some big dreams and big ideals, what I really want to achieve, which really transcend or go beyond all those other types of meanings. It can also be about being aware of my place in history and my place in the universe, justice and ethics, spirituality, religion. So those larger types of meanings are about anything that's bigger than myself or other people. It's a larger perspective. And then finally, there are the existential philosophical types of meanings. And these are the more abstract theoretical concepts, uh, such as certain people, they can find meaning in the fact that they are alive, in their uniqueness, in their connectedness, their freedom or the gratitude. So there are the six different types of meaning in life, materialistic meanings, hedonistic meanings, self-oriented, social, larger, and the abstract types of meaning. And what I've seen is that those materialistic, hedonistic, and self-oriented types of meanings, these are correlated or associated with lower psychological and even physical well-being. Whereas people who focus more on the things that are socially important for them or the larger types of meanings, they actually experience much better psychological and physical well-being. So this seems to imply that, yes, we may benefit for, from any type of meaning, but we seem to mainly benefit psychologically and physically when we mainly focus on the more social or the larger types of meanings. And also, interestingly enough, by the way, a follow-up study that I did where I developed this into a survey I found out that it's mainly in the capitalistic countries, so the countries with a strong capitalist economy, it's particularly in those countries that people focus on materialism, hedonism, and themselves. And whereas it's uh, the less capitalist countries that is more focused on social and larger types of need. Yeah, and that makes me wonder, especially, I, I grew up and spent the, the vast majority of my life in the United States, and... Here, it very much feels as though the standard path that you go down in terms of public school education and just the, the kind of activities and experiences you go through, no one focused a lot on, say, uh, meaning refinement as an activity. Uh, and I, I feel as though there's just a lot of language missing around uh, mental health well-being as a whole. So I guess for for someone who you know, might be in, in undergrad in college doing their bachelor's or in their 20s or however old, younger or, or whatever age they might be at, if they're just starting to think of these kinds of things, you know, where do you usually point a person to in terms of starting that meaning journey? Because the thing is that I think might be bringing me enjoyment in the day to day might just be more a result of the, the conditioned activities, so to say, as opposed to the, the exploration of the things that I enjoy. 
Absolutely. And this is also what I spoke about in my last book, about the economics of meaning in life. In a book, I'm talking very much about how our societal, political and economic context is really conditioning us and is reinforcing certain types of meaning in life. Because why do people in capitalist countries follow capitalist dreams? That often is because they are being told that all the time. It's in the most subtle ways and also explicit ways. And we're being told that we should focus on those materialistic goals. Uh, like you cannot become happy in life and live like uh, a satisfied life where you do not have a certain degree, where you do not have a certain job, uh, or when you do not have a certain type of wealth. It's actually weird, but all the research is showing that these are precisely the things that you do not necessarily need to be able to, uh, lead, a, uh, to lead a satisfying life. But we are being told this capitalist myth all the time. And where even like they have totally um, misused the ideas from uh, Abraham Maslow with his idea that there's a pyramid, that yes, it's like we need to achieve certain steps, but first we, you need to have like security materialistically before you can fulfill all the bigger dreams, which is all nonsense. That's referring to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Precisely. And there's no research, no evidence for that at all. Yes, it works where you have been brainwashed to think in that way. But it's not a universal thing. So when you ask, where should you start when you grow up in such a conditioned yeah, society? When, for instance, like you are at school, uh, start of university or high school, and yes, your parents are telling you what you should do, where you should go to, or your teachers are telling that, the government is telling that. The main important question is like, Ask yourself, what is it really that life wants from me? And what is the bigger perspective? And so I often use a so-called deathbed experiment. Uh, and that's like a thought experiment, which comes from Irving Yalom. That is very much like, try to imagine that you're dying. And let's hope that will take many, many, many decades. But imagine that you're dying and you look back on your life. How do you need to live your life? to be able to die a satisfied death. And then compare different options. And for instance, think about, imagine that you have led a life where you've had a perfect career and you had a big car in front of your house and a big status, people were applauding you, but you did not really have like social connections or you've not really tried to make the world a better place like and try to contribute to a more equal and just society. How would it make you feel? And then compare that with the option where you've lived a life where possibly you may not have had so much material wealth or status, but it's a life where you've contributed to the community, where you've had like great friends, family, where you've tried to build a better society. And when you compare those two options, which way do you want to live your life in such a way that you can die with a satisfied feeling about your life? And it's interesting when I ask this question and when I do this, particularly with young people, yeah, I, I think that it's almost like um, a rhetoric question because everyone will, of course, say, yes, of course, obviously, these social and larger types of meanings matter more to me. Okay, let's really try to take it serious. I do not put that idea aside. Listen to the gut feeling, listen to that intuition. And quite often, this intuition gets revealed in some 
kind of discomfort, a little bit of being at, un, at unease in your life, not knowing where to go in, in your life. That that kind of, yeah, it's not as if there's something really wrong in your life. Objectively speaking, yes, you're ticking all the boxes of society, but is this it? It's that question, that kind of existential uneasiness that is a starting point for a beautiful journey to really explore what's really meaningful. And use those feelings when you feel I'm living my life at this moment, but I'm not totally sure whether this is it. Great. It's brilliant that you feel that because you can use that feeling as a source in, on your journey to really think, okay, so what is it in the current moment that makes you feel at unease? And where, how could you feel more at ease? And this is where the phenomenological process starts, where you start to ask yourself those questions. When do I feel at, at ease and when do I feel at unease? And often it will be more in, in, in all the different gray tones. That, but it's about learning to distinguish all those different feelings about what's more meaningful, what's less meaningful, and make that into a practice because also it's also a skill. And it's a skill that you can train. The skill of asking yourself critically the question, how meaningful is this and what's not meaningful? So as a way to, as an exercise, as type of homework that I often give my clients or when I give a training, that is to take like five or 10 minutes at the end of each day where you write down in a diary three moments that felt particularly meaningful that day and three of the least meaningful moments on the day. And just write this in like a diary for a couple of weeks. And I guarantee you that you'll start to see a pattern. And quite often, you can analyze a pattern in terms of those different types of meaning. For instance, you can start to see, okay, I focus a lot on social types of meanings or I focus more on materialistic types of meaning. And so this is a way how we can develop some self-insight into what's more meaningful, what's less meaningful. Simply observe. But again, there's also what I call uh, that it is a systematic approach because it's important not to reflect only once in a while on what's meaningful and no, but make this a part of your daily way of living to, to ask yourself that question. And one thing that I really appreciate about the, the, the view that you're mentioning is even the reframing of what, are the, what a lot of the time is viewed as a very negative experience of coming to that point of existential dread and reframing that as, well, this is actually the beginning of a journey and Absolutely. one where you will be able to address this question and not just you know, find the, the, the one word answer somewhat magically floating somewhere that will solve this question for you. But it's, it's sort of the journey of then starting to create a process and procedure for yourself as an individual of how to continuously find and refine that meaning and kind of hone in on that. And I think that reframing of the depression is such an empowering thing that I, I just don't get why uh, that, that is not more actively used across the board, given how many people, especially I feel as though in their teens to early 20s, go through some phase of existential dread. And a lot of the time, especially in more of the capitalist pharmacological focused approaches towards therapy might say, oh, well, those are just natural defects. Just take pills and you'll be great. Uh, as opposed to really focusing on something like what you're talking about, which can actually provide resilient strategies of how to deal with uh, these kind of thoughts of meaning, irrespective of where you are in your life. Absolutely. And this is also what so much research shows, is that the quest for meaning 
is a very healthy quest. The only thing is, again, what I said is like when there's a quest without any moment where we say, albeit just for pragmatic purposes, uh, if there's not a moment where you say, okay, I know when to stop questioning and I know when to simply go and do my grocery shopping, for instance, when I'm able to, to stop my reflection and really be, that's the only important bit. But asking the questions, that's extremely healthy. And I really would say it's like when a client comes to me and they do not ask questions about meaning in life, that is unhealthy. And I would really start to be very afraid. Very, um, yeah, I would be afraid that someone is having like a strong mental problem when they do not ask questions about life. Because I would ask a question, what are they pushing away? What are they denying? Because it's human to ask us questions. And there's no research at all that shows that asking questions about life makes you depressed. No. Um, what makes people depressed is our pharmacological culture and a culture in which it's not okay to ask certain questions. And by the way, sometimes it may be needed to, to, to get some uh, other support because not all mental health problems have existential origins, of course, but it can be. And I think it's important to always first look at those more existential underlying questions before we start drugging people down. Absolutely. I, I, I never mean to, to belittle the instances where it is an absolutely necessary tool for individuals to deal with their problems, but uh, I've just seen in, in my own life and uh, folks around me where it's uh, a well-placed therapist and a few good discussions will provide you with uh, with much more resilience as opposed to going the, the more pharmacological route. But I, I did also want to ask a follow-up, especially given the year that we're recording in, and we are still recording at the tail end of 2020. This is a year where uh, our circumstance and environment uh, that, you know, it's so rare that we collectively deal with such a shared experience, almost irrespective of where we are geographically, but it's forced us to constrain our behavior, you know, adjust our habits. Uh, and I know you've done some work looking at kind of the links between COVID and meaning. Yeah, it, it would just be great if you could share some of the overall findings. Is there a, a mass global reassessment of meaning or is it a, just a, a more complicated kind of interaction there of what's been happening? How many hours do you have for me to answer this question? <laughs> uh, because yeah, that, we're not constrained, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, this is a question that you can, can answer in so many different ways. I've tried to more or less summarize everything that we know from a scientific perspective about those questions. I've tried to summarize that in my book, The Psychology of COVID-19, Building Resilience for Future Pandemics, uh, that has come out with SAGE. Yeah, so I really start in this book talking about uncertainty because uncertainty is the most important part of the full pandemic, particularly now at this moment that we're having this interview. It's at the end of 2020. There's still so much uncertain. And almost all the basic questions, there are uncertainties about it. When you really look at the scientific literature, when you look at, okay, how likely is it that those tests, like the PCR tests, that it can pick up the virus? How reliable are they? How many false negatives and false positives do they get? But also about the vaccine. We, there has, of course, been a lot of criticism for the vaccines that have been uh, produced in such a small period of time, whereas even before, in like more than a decade, uh, the pharmaceutical industry was unable to create a vaccine for uh, the previous trends um, of COVID. There are so many questions around that. 
and also the effectiveness of lockdowns, whereas actually like the side effects of lockdowns, uh, for instance, due to the closing of these so-called non-urgent medical departments, that has created so many deaths. But also when we look at um, uh, the psychological impact that it has had on people, um, particularly the impact of the lockdown, that and also the impact on the economy, which subsequently has a big impact on the, on the psyche of people. All of those issues, they bring so much uncertainty. And the question is, how do we cope with this uncertainty? Is it uncertainty, is it uncertainty that we try to push away? Or are we realistic about it? And do we cope with it in a realistic way? On a very high level at the WHO, the World Health Organization, they decided already in February, March 2020, that the main focus will be on reducing all the uncertainty in the health communication. So they told all the governments internationally that they should deny or ignore the uncertainties that are really there in the science. And instead, they should give one clear message and also particularly underlining the existential threats that are there. Because the reasoning of those people in the WHO, their reasoning is, okay, when there's certainty, when there's certainty people know what to do and people will follow all the guidance and all the guidelines like using the personal protective equipment, uh, such as all the mouth masks, wash, uh, washing of the hands, etc. But when there's uncertainty, some people may feel less inclined to follow those rules. At least that was their reason. However, what we've now seen is that government started to create a one very clear message where they focus very much on everything that's going wrong. And they tried to put all the uncertainties aside. For instance, when we were li listening to the... Uh, all the numbers of infections and deaths. Each day, we heard that on the press briefings by the White House and by the Downing Street and all the other places in the world. And by that, they actually started to underline the threat of it, the existential threat. And they started to underline that, yes, there's a certainty, there's a certain pattern. And it did not ask all those questions that are there and that are also realistic to acknowledge. So I'm not saying that there's nothing going on in the, in the world. Oh, no, there's absolutely a, a very clear a big pandemic going on, on, or at least with a virus that's, that's going around the world that is impacting a lot of lives. However, I think that on a more political level, a societal level, it's important that we are realistic about it. Because what you now start to see is that people start to develop some uh, conspiracy theories around the reasons why governments are ignoring some of the critical questions. And so in that sense, it's impossible to have like a critical uh, phenomenological analysis of the pandemic at this moment, because those questions are not allowed. But actually, it's very counterproductive, whereas people actually become less likely to follow rules because of the authoritarianism of government. And so what we've seen now is globally a big authoritarian trend uh, amongst governments, and whereas actually like they often do not have the support of the population. And the only way how they can enforce that is by creating a lot of fear. Okay, in my, in my book, I'll go into much more details into this. But then the question is, how does this impact our own lives? So in the first place, people are confronted with this existential threat that they hear all the time on the news, because that is very much the focus of the public health communication. And so people hear all the time, okay, it's possible that you can get this virus and that you can die. And then people co come with certain case studies and on social media, people uh, share all those horrible stories, which are really horrible situations. But there's a 
small likelihood of what's called an induction fallacy. So where from individual cases, people uh, generalize what it means for themselves personally. But we do not know whether we are equally vulnerable like our neighbor. Our neighbor could get infected, but possibly my immune system is different. And also there's still so many questions around that. But so one of the topics that I found in my current research is some surveys that I've conducted, but also what I've seen in other research is how people cope with pandemic. The most crucial skill is the ability to cope with uncertainty. Because certain because people differ in the extent to to which how much how much uncertainty they can bear, and this often has to do with your own life experiences. Whereas people who have had very few uncertainties in their lives before, suddenly they get totally overwhelmed by the current uncertainties and they they get freaked out logically. Whereas people who have already been confronted with life's uncertainties in the past, people who have learned to live with uncertainty on a daily basis. For them, this is almost just another uncertainty. Of course, I'm not doing total justice by <laughs> reducing it so simple. But th- this, this ability to bear existential uncertainty is a crucial skill for people to have. And yes, for some people, when they are confronted now with this uncertainty, it can make them aware of, in general, in life, what uncertainties are there. Not only in the current situation, but always, also in future, in in each potential situation. So people start to generalize their lessons that they're learning now from COVID, that they think, okay, there's not only like a lot of stuff to fear now from the virus, but in life as such, there's much to fear. And so it can be that people suddenly get confronted with what sometimes has been called life's givens, uh, such as death, mortality, sickness, all those topics that we may not have had reflected on before. And so suddenly, for some individuals, those topics suddenly become urgent on the top of their agenda, whereas in the past, it was not there. And yes, and then we also see that people who have had like a flexible type of meaning, where they've had multiple types of meaning in life, and people who have been able to live meaningful life despite of life's challenges and life's givens, individuals who have that skill, they are also able to better cope with the current pandemic. Having a flexible sense of meaning, particularly having like social types of meanings or larger types of meanings, seeing the higher purposes in life, that can really help us to cope also with this pandemic alongside the skill to bear a sin. In the, either the studies that you've been conducting or just the other work that you've seen, ha- has there been any attempt to um, get some insight? Is it you know, people understanding the finitude of their existence versus the lack of control over most things. You know, has there been an attempt to figure out what exactly are humans kind of coming to terms with or what is the variance of that kind of process of individually coming to terms with uh, something that makes us more aware of our limited existence? Or is it all just uh, something about this kind of existential threat and the more constrained environment is just leading to those results. Yeah, this is a very um, generic and, and at the same time quite fundamental question. There's many ways how, how, there are many ways how I can answer this. But what I can say is what I've seen in the literature is how people perceive the, the current threat is very much influenced by how they cope with meaning in life and uncertainty in general, and also the other way around. 
the more you're currently feeling under threat, the more you feel that your life's at stake, the more you start to question your life. So that's like vicious cycle. But yeah, what I did to say is like the people who really had a huge impact mentally, people who were really like uh, really stressed a lot over the pandemic. Often that has to do with, yeah, the fact that those people have often been focusing very much on materialistic or hedonistic types of meanings or on themselves and not on the larger perspectives. And so for instance, when you have always focused on your career, like currently your career is totally changed or is even under threat, that can be quite difficult. At the same time, there's also another thing that is the inequality of the pandemic. And that's a thing that's often not underlined and stressed enough because the pandemic does not affect people in the same way. The richer you are, the less likely that you is it is that you will be impacted in a heavy way, in a, in a big way. So what we really see is that the pandemic is a pandemic in the first place of inequality, of economic and socioeconomic inequality. And of course, in the United States, we've seen it very much in a lot of the um, in a lot of the black communities and communities of all the ethnic uh, groups, uh, minority groups. Uh, but this is a trend that we've seen internationally, uh, also in the UK, where I usually live. Uh, we've, we've seen the same pattern, where as it's it's like ethnic minorities, but also individuals with a lower socioeconomic status who are suffering the most, and so. It's also like they're more likely to, to get exposed to the virus, more likely to, to get ill. And so what's interesting is I did a big study where, again, I did a meta-analysis of all studies on the mental health impact of COVID-19. And what I found is that approximately one in two healthcare workers experience severe mental health problems, such as depression, anxiety, acute or post-medic stress. Whereas in the general population, that's like one third of the people experience any of those symptoms. Then I looked at what are the reasons that our study said, why do people get so, yeah, so stressed and experience those mental health problems? And in the healthcare workers, it usually had to do with the stress of the very bad organization, also a lack of PPE, also a fear of getting infected by patients. And uh, but it's very much a very strong focus on a lack of support politically and from the organization of the healthcare organization. And in the general population, we see again it's the inequality that directly has a big impact on the mental health that people have during COVID 19. Uh, but also, how much am I afraid of it? How much do I, how threatening do I perceive the virus as? Um, how do I cope also with uncertainties? All those variables really tie into that. And just being mindful of the time, I also just want to pivot and ask you a quick question about, uh, I know you are involved with and organize a, a large conference related to meeting on an annual basis. Do you mind just briefly mentioning what the conference is and specifically answering, what do you see as sort of the purpose of creating and running this? Of course. So I have been organizing, or I should better say we have been organizing the IMEC International Meaning Conferences in London uh, now for many years in a row. And we are at this moment uh, in a reorganization. And at the moment that people start listening to this podcast, um, that reorganization should have already been finished. Uh, where um, in this new organization, which we st still call IMEC, there are multiple activities going on. 
indeed, like we organize an annual conference uh, on meaning. And that's a conference for professionals, but also for the general audience. And what's very unique is that we do not only want to talk about it, but also really live it. So what I find important is that we break all the professional boundaries and inequalities that you often get at conferences. I find it important, for instance, that I get rid of all the titles of the speakers when they are talking at the conference. It's a naughty bit, I know. Certain people, they need it for their ego. But what I find important is like, yeah, we're all trying to sort out this this thing called life. And like, why should I have more wisdom? Or why should I boast more on that than a person who has very important questions or even like some suggestions that they don't have all those titles. So it's very much about creating like a community around meaning. And therefore, our organization is now called the International Meaning Events and Community, IMEC. And so it's not only those conferences that we organize each year, but also we have weekly groups and which have become a very important a source of support for a lot of people now during the pandemic. We have them each Wednesday evening from seven till nine. And in those groups, we talk about, uh, how should I say that? We, we talk about the questions and the topics that really matter to us, particularly during the pandemic. How can we still live a meaningful life despite of all the daily life challenges that we're having? And we've also um, asked people what the experiences are of this. And they really found that uh, talking about us deeper topics and like keeping like their focus on what really matters has really helped them keep their mental sanity <laughs> uh, because it can be so uh, stressful the pandemic and like those groups can really help people and people can find out more about this on meaning.org.uk. Sorry, that was my uh, marketing. Uh, uh, oh no! Please. I had well, to do <laughs> yeah, of course you got you got to make sure to to plug where people can find it, Absolutely. and I'll make sure to to post all that information in the show notes, both in terms of some links on your background and where people can learn more about you, as well as the the specific conference and some of your books that that you mentioned as well. But just to to wrap up with a final uh, question related to meaning, where do you personally derive meaning from in your own life? Where I derive meaning from, well, there's quite a long list, fortunately. Uh, but I really dare to say uh, what, what, what's really important for me is yeah, trying to make the world a better place. I'm just making that, saying that now in a very big, big way. At the same time, I'm also enjoying things, making music. Uh, but it does not have the same status for me or the same importance. And this is very much also where my vision lies, because I really think that for me, what is meaningful is trying together to build communities where we help each other and where we can actually help people to live a more meaningful life, to get resources, um, to like, for instance, this podcast that you are doing, that is brilliant. And that's something that is also very much connected with what's really meaningful for me in my life, what we're doing with our IMAC events and community, where we really try to put those questions out there the resources for everyone. I think that those questions are becoming more and more important, particularly in our current era, where there's a lot of people with commercial interests who are trying to enforce those materialistic, hedonistic, and self-oriented types of meanings, where I'm trying to help people uh, see the larger the larger and social types of meanings and create communities where people can be reminded of that, get resources to actually focus on what's truly meaningful. 
And what you really see is that society in general is changing at this moment. We are really in a moment of big change. And on the one hand, there are people who are very much trying to use their commercial interests and all their powers to enforce their perspectives. But at the same time, you see that people are becoming more critical. The epidemic has made people more critical of the powers from politicians and from employers, etc. So I think this is a very beautiful time where I find it very meaningful to dedicate my own time and effort to yeah, create communities and create, do research to, to really help people live a more meaningful life. Because in the end, I believe that each individual deserves to live a meaningful life. And I'm actually talking about that that is like the most fundamental basic human right that we should be striving for. And that is to help people, each individual, uh, whoever you are, wherever you have been born, each individual deserves to live a meaningful life. And that is very much my higher goal and purpose. It is to really try to make that happen, to do justice to individuals, to help them live a meaningful life. I think that is uh, as positive of a note as we can possibly end on here. And I, I appreciate you so much uh, taking the time uh, to speak with me today. And yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Or you can find me with the handle of On Meaning Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler, who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com, to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon.